We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Who Killed Malcolm X is one of the illest Netflix documentaries to come along in a while. You already know how important Malcolm is and how inspirational he is. I love to hear him speak from the stage and bring that fire. This doc goes into all of that, but also into the detective story around who killed Malcolm. Because he was murdered by three gunmen who shot at him at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem as he was speaking, shot him right in front of his wife and his four young daughters. We know who shot him. We know that the main trigger man did not get caught and was not convicted or punished for the murder. We know that he was a Muslim from Newark. And thanks to this doc, we know that the NYPD knew Malcolm was about to be killed and did nothing. And we know that the FBI, the federal government, had infiltrated Malcolm's organization and the Nation of Islam and was actively trying to sow dissent that would lead to division and perhaps murder. And new out of this doc is this that really kills me. Malcolm's main bodyguard was an NYPD infiltrator and secret informant Malcolm didn't know. And he was standing right beside Malcolm when he was killed. So he could have saved him. He could have, and this part makes me so mad, he could have helped identify his killer. Don't forget, this is the Patreon era of Torre Show. We got two episodes a week for you now, including a Friday Patreon exclusive for our Patreon supporters. For that, go to patreon.com slash Torre Show. For now, it's the two directors of Who Killed Malcolm X on Netflix, Rachel Dretzen and Phil Bertelson on Torre Show. There are so many things in this documentary that blew me away. And perhaps Malcolm's closest bodyguard was an NYPD plant. (laughs) That alone. Plus, he was standing right next to Malcolm when he was assassinated, which means he probably knew who actually pulled the trigger because I assume William Bradley was closest to Malcolm. And 
Third, the NYPD did not question him, did not, were not made aware of his uh, status as a cop for many years. And you guys spent a lot of time talking to this man. Well, a couple, a couple corrections on that. That was almost right. Um, we didn't actually talk to him because he passed away. What okay. you saw and what you see in the documentary are extensive interviews that were done with him okay. by two other folks who talked to him before he died. Okay. Um, but the and the other thing is, it was the it was the um, district attorney's office, the prosecutor, the prosecutor that did not tell the. Um, no, the no, NYPD no, I'm sorry. The NYPD did not, did tell, not the tell the prosecutor exactly that they had a plant in the room. That's right. That he was there. He could have said, "No, that guy did it. Not yeah. those guys." Theoretically, he could have. <sighs> tell know, the people about <laughs> this man, for starters. Well, I'll start by saying, not only did the NYPD not give him and his name to the prosecution when they were, <clears throat> you know, forming the case for questioning, but uh, they chastised him for actually trying to save Malcolm's life. Um, CPR. Yes. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which many conspiracy theorists, theorists, I should say, um, suspect he was actually stifling Malcolm's last breath as opposed to trying to give him life. Um, And, well, that was his argument anyway to the NYPD, to his superiors, that he was trying to save Malcolm's life. And they're like, why would you do that? You know, he's... You're a cop. He's a thug, I think is the quote. Right. And it's uh, it's really troublesome to hear that that was the mentality of those who are, you know, charged with our service and protection. Uh, and I, 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 I shudder to think um, that that may in some ways be true today. But. Well, how did we get even to what was this man's name? Gene, Gene Roberts. Roberts. How did Gene Roberts enter? It wasn't the Nation of Islam because this is after Malcolm had left or been kicked out of the Nation of Islam. How did he enter Malcolm's? This is the OAAU era. It was the OAAU era, and the um, organization. Yeah. Malcolm had two organizations yeah, the, actually at that the, point. The Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which was the MMI. So we had a religious organization, which was the MMI, and the OAAU, which was his political arm, um, and. Uh, Gene essentially infiltrated both as a bodyguard. So he was security. You know, he wasn't aligned as a as a patron of of Malcolm so much as a devotee who was assigned to his security detail. And he rises up to become his number one guy. He was his security coordinator. So, you know, it's hard to know if that means he was his number one guy, but he was clearly in a central and important critical He's role. Standing literally yes. beside him. Yes. You know, the the part of the story that we don't get to tell is how he actually got exposed years later um, in the Panther 21 trial here in New York City, celebrated trial that um, was, you know, won on the part of the Panthers. But Gene Roberts had infiltrated the Panthers, so he left Malcolm's detail, he infiltrated the Panthers, and he was called to witness on this particular day of trial and was a no-show. So everyone's looking around and they're like, where's Gene? And suddenly they knew who the mole was. Uh, at least the attorneys did. And they they forced him to testify and basically outed him on the stand. It's a traumatic story. He broke down, you know. It's an amazing story because the the 
prosecutor who was questioning him, um, you know, was essentially pushing him to— It was an attorney, Gerald Leftcourt. Gerald Leftcourt to, you know, essentially confess that he had been trying to kill Malcolm when he was giving him mouth to mouth. And Gene evidently broke down on the stand, and he was like, no, I loved him. And actually, there is evidence that Gene, you know, the more time that he spent around Malcolm, the more he began to admire him. And by the time Malcolm was dead, Gene actually did love Malcolm, which complicates the whole picture because the NYPD completely distrusted the guy, completely distrusted him and saw him as having gone over to the other side. So it's a it's a really fascinating story. And actually, after that, you know, Roberts just deteriorated to the point where, you know, he he died with his head in a bottle, you know? He mm. was really... I think that the term was face down on a bar somewhere. Yeah, mm. no teeth. You know? So it's a, it's a tragic tale of, of, you know, being African-American at that time and being part of law enforcement in such a way that your identity was withheld. You were a ghost among, you know, goblins, right? And they ate them up, spit them out. This is not the only infiltrator who was there at the end there were nine other nypd and fbi infiltrators in the room when malcolm is killed that's just the fbi oh so nine fbi (laughs) people are in the room all of whom gave statements to the fbi but because the fbi and the nypd were not openly exchanging information or at least not the fbi with the nypd um those Test, that testimony was never entered into. Those informants were never called to testify or be questioned. And it is one of those informants, at least one, who pointed to Bradley. Not necessarily by name, but a simple process of deduction, as we show in the series, would lead the, the investigators inevitably to Bradley. Um, one of those FBI informants um, had actually spoken to someone at a very high-ranking level, who told him that the person who pulled the trigger on the shotgun was a lieutenant in the Newark Mosque. And there were only a handful of lieutenants in the Newark Mosque. and Of which Bradley was one. <laughs> William Bradley, uh, who got away. But before you even deal with William Bradley, is it your feeling that William Bradley himself, who killed Malcolm X, who fired the kill shot, was an FBI infiltrator or an FBI informant? We cannot prove that. We don't have the evidence to prove that. The FBI is incredibly protective of their anonymous informants, um, human informants, as they call them. And, um, And so all of those records are heavily redacted. However, the fact that the FBI how was sitting on this information and explicitly, as we do see, said that it should not be shared with the NYPD unless it was ordered from on high, suggests that they might have been protecting Bradley. There are other things that point to the possibility that Bradley was being protected by somebody. There was a bank robbery that he was part of. Some and years later. Indicted for, I believe. Um, certainly with arrested a for. With shotgun. Right. Mm-hmm. The same and, weapon that killed Malcolm. And he had a co-conspirator in that robbery. Who went forward. And was prosecuted, and suddenly his was just dropped. His case was dropped. He walked. So that would suggest perhaps somebody higher up the FBI is saying, we're taking care of this person. Essentially. That's, yeah, let's that's, not pursue this. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, a, it's, it's speculation. Time. Yeah, it's speculation. And, you know, ultimately Bradley, you know, did do a fair amount of time for a number of horrendous crimes from assault and battery and, you know. Well, let's tell the story about armed William Bradley then, because he comes from the Newark Mosque. He's a lieutenant in the FOI, the Fruit of Islam, known tough guy, criminal, felt very comfortable with a sawed-off shotgun, which is, as you say in the documentary, was not an easy weapon to manipulate. Right. And he is the one who is selected to go and kill Malcolm. Well, there were three weapons that were used. And five men who conspired. But the, the weapon that definitely, inarguably, fired the kill shot was the sawed-off shotgun, which was the first one to hit him and which killed him. I think it's also, uh, you know, should be mentioned that he was a uh, ex-Marine. He, you know, he served our country and was honorably discharged and learned to handle those weapons with our tax dollars paying for it. But then he becomes a criminal in the years after he leaves the Marines. Correct. Right. He's a bank robber. Yep. He's his rap sheet is big and long, and um, we were only able to. Or Abdur Rahman Muhammad, who's our kind of sleuth in the series, was only able to unlock it once he had his Muslim name, um, which was Al Mustafa Shabazz. Um, but you know, there's a long list of crimes, uh, several of them committed with a sawed-off shotgun. Yes, and he just walked away. He walked away into history. There's. Some theory that he's actually the man featured in footage uh, outside the Autobahn that day um, where he kind of feigns this resistance um, and then simply straightens up his coat and struts across the camera. Um, It's really spooky. It's a scene where there was a mob that gathered around the one assassin who was caught on the scene, Talmadge Hayer. And it's a group of police officers, for the most part, who are trying to basically protect him from a mob that's attacking him. And in the black and white footage that was taken of that scene, there is a guy, a heavyset guy with an overcoat and a newspaper in his pocket who definitely resembles William Bradley. Um, It's many years ago now, um, who sort of pretends, as Phil says, he sort of feigns to get involved in the scrum. And then he just kind of weirdly pulls himself away and kind of hurriedly walks across the frame in a way that's really hard to understand or explain. It's hard for me to understand how he could have shot Malcolm in front of about 400 people and nobody was able to go. That guy did it. No, I mean, and we know there was a distraction created beforehand, but surely that the- distraction created beforehand should not be underestimated because all the attention went to those two men who were actually in the middle somewhere. So people's attention went to the center of the crowd and drew their attention away from the rostrum where Malcolm was. And in the front row were the gunmen who then leapt up and did their dirty work with you know, Bradley leading the way with the sawed-off shotgun. Not to mention a visit to the Autobahn and photos will demonstrate to you that there are exits at the front of the Autobahn right off the stage where these men could very easily have just dropped their weapons, which they did, and go out unnoticed and then come around to another entrance where the scrum was happening. So there were multiple entrances. The Autobahn at the time was nothing 
like it is today. It's been basically truncated, cut in half, and turned into an educational center. But at the time, it was a huge auditorium and ballroom. There are a couple other things that, that made it difficult for the assassins to be identified. One is that because there were so many shots that were fired at once, seemingly at once, most people just ducked, ducked just went under their seats. Um, it was terrifying. And so, you know, they were out before many people could notice them. That's number one. Number two, they actually were identified. I mean, these guys were not known to the Harlem audience. They were from the Newark mosques. So, you know, several eyewitnesses described a heavy set, burly guy, dark skin firing that shotgun. But, you know, it was chaos. There were lots of eyewitnesses. And totally. it went uninvestigated. And that's why the, the eyewitness testimony that convicted the three convicted assassins is so unreliable because it was all over the place, the eyewitness testimony. And so he goes back to Newark and lives out his life, passed away in 2018. But as you talk about in the piece, it's an open secret in Newark that lots of people in the Nation of Islam community in Newark knew you just say the guy who killed Malcolm and they say, oh yeah, that guy. Like, <laughs> it's you just knew. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Widely held, open, secret. Seemed to be the only person in Newark of any import who wasn't aware of that history was Cory former mayor, now Senator Cory Booker. <laughs> I mean, when you talk to, I mean, yeah, you talk to not just people in the street, but you talk to like officials. I mean, Ross Baraka's like, yeah, I've heard that. And and who is the, um, the lady you talked to? Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver. Lieutenant Governor. The highest elected black official in the state of New Jersey. And she's she was like, at yeah. his funeral. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I heard. I heard that. Uh, you know, we she, don't know, but I heard that. She counts among her very dear friends his 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 widow, a woman named Carolyn Kelly. Um, I'm not sure she needs to be drawn into this, but, you know, it should be stated that we we attempted to get her view on things and talk to her and she she refused to, to uh, participate. Mm. But we found lieutenant governor because we actually were filming from outside across the street at his service. And um, we saw a security detail. Yep. Men talking into their sleeves and federal vehicles. And what's I'm that? thinking, what's that all about? So Horse we go back, carriage. we play the footage for who was it? Somebody in the community. I'm like, who's yes. that woman that's being protected? And they're like, that's the lieutenant governor of the state. And we're like, no way. And then we called her and asked for an interview. And she, to our astonishment, she agreed. And to our even greater astonishment, she openly admitted being at his funeral and knowing that this was what was he was said to have done. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her 
daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. If you love Torrey Show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a Black and progressive perspective. If I hear the phrase Midwestern fucking values as if their experience in the Midwest around all white people is somehow better. Well, the people in the middle of the country are real Americans. We we're are, an, uh, we're I, avatars, I, right? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. We are avatars. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre Show. There's a crazy moment where um, uh, your host is talking to somebody um, about William Bradley and, uh, they say, um, yeah, leave him alone. Yeah. Don't mess with him. Don't mess with that. And he says it several times, like, do you want to mess with that one? That, you know, and that did not, I mean, you know, make a documentary like this. Some of the moments are created that seemed very real. Totally real. Totally real. We actually were just getting our cameras up and running and our, host, as you call him, but who's really an independent historian, Abdur Rahman Mohammed, knew this man because they hadn't encountered before and, and just went up to him, you know, before we were ready and asked this question, what we're going to do about him. And we just happened to kind of catch it. You'll see it from a low angle. The camera was not quite ready. It's well, he steady. was mic'd already. So but we he was mic'd it. and uh, we got it. Um, and it was, it was a very true uh, moment. You could see and hear the fear. In the man's voice. I think that was before Bradley passed away. Oh, yeah, well before Bradley had passed away. I mean, it's extraordinary. Just you're making this documentary and you're looking for 
William Bradley, and then as you're making, you find out that he passed away. As you're searching for him, on the hunt, yeah, yeah, it was it was brutal. But on, in retrospect, um, it it helped us because it freed up a bunch of people to talk mm. who probably wouldn't have talked. Certainly not in the way they did. I mean, no one outwardly admitted knowing firsthand or having been told by him or anything like that. But there was a much greater willingness to share the the lore, mm. as it were. Now, one of the things that this piece does is it paints this much larger picture, right? Because, you know, yes, William Bradley pulled the trigger, um, but there's a much larger web of folks who lead to this happening. And I want to go through them in a sort of order, sort of expanding outward. I mean, you can't talk about who killed Malcolm X and truly answer the question without talking about Elijah Muhammad. And he is a critical part of this matrix. Um, what is his part in this? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about his role in this. Um, but what we know is that he reported to um, or, or spoke to on the phone and in person m- many high-ranking members of the nation and said things about Malcolm that if you understood the way, the sort of coded language in which he spoke easily could have been, likely could have been, almost definitely could have been, in our opinion, interpreted as an order. Um, nothing was directly spoken, but um, the language that he used for those in the know was clearly language that meant to sanction Malcolm's murder. Um, so we're able to kind of trace that in the documentary and look at the ways in which um, that was then sort of rippled down. Um, down to the ranks. Um, but the nation was, Elijah was very careful to sort of create distance between himself and the rank and file. What, what, what exactly does that sound like from Elijah Muhammad when he tells his people we want to kill Malcolm in the coded language? What does he say? I'm trying to remember some of this well, exact Well, I think language. the most explicit would be um, something that his son said here in New York at the armory to a gathering of the fruit um, where he said, you know, that his father was looking for Malcolm's tongue to be cut out and sent back to him in Chicago, uh, which many interpreted. That's not coded. Yeah. Well, he, I think actually, I think he but said it a little, it was a little less explicit. I think he's, what he said cut was, his tongue out. Malcolm's tongue should be cut out. He didn't say my father asked. He said Malcolm's tongue should be cut out, put in an envelope and sent to my father. So it was, it was not. And that was that was probably the most explicit, but it was his son. It wasn't him, so there was a little bit of distance there. And there's some commentary in a unredacted FBI document that we cover where he says something to the fact that Malcolm should be uh, treated like the Judas that he is, um, and you know that is in itself coded language to suggest that you know he's a traitor and should be dealt with as mm-hmm. such. People who know this Malcolm Muhammad story know that part of the key rift between them is when Malcolm discovers that Elijah Muhammad has fathered children with, is it seven younger women? That's multiple. In the Nation of Islam? Yeah, I mean, who knows the exact number, but a, a, a 
a large multiple of women, young women in the nation of Islam, um, which sort of breaks for Malcolm the dream of Elijah Muhammad as this amazing person. So is your documentary positing that the FBI found that information and disseminated it or that the FBI created that? No, there's no evidence that the FBI created that. I mean, this it's pretty well documented that that, that this, in fact, happened, that Elijah Muhammad had secretaries and assistants who were young and who were his mistresses. He had an apartment in which he you know, consorted with them, and there were babies born, illegitimate babies born. And it wasn't just that this broke Malcolm's heart. It really went against everything Elijah Muhammad and the nation stood for because adultery was seen as the, you know, cardinal, yeah, cardinal it sin. It was heresy. So, um, and Elijah Muhammad was always seen as a very pure, um, godlike figure. Divine, um, I think, is divine. what they mm-hmm. describe him but as. But the FBI, the FBI was key in disseminating this story and making sure Malcolm and others heard it. They wanted to use it to create a rift between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad and between Elijah Muhammad and his most and his, devoted, devoted followers. Well, and even his wife. And even you know, his, wife, his wife, there were Clara. poison pen letters. That's they, right. That they, in the same way they did Coretta Scott King, they did Clara Because you say that the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, had more infiltrators in the Nation of Islam than in Dr. King's organization, more than in the Black Panthers as well? Correct. Yeah. They yes. had um, what are called top-level— top Top-level top informants, which meant they were not only um, giving, you know— proven information, but in all likelihood being paid for it. Mm. Well, and also that they were in very high-ranking high positions inside the, the nation. Within the organization. And there were more high-ranking position, high-ranking informants inside the nation than in any other of the organizations at the FBI. Um, Black civil rights organizations, as it were. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so this rift is key to why... Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad break. Well, you know, and the FBI made sure yeah. that the right people oh, yeah. knew about yeah. it. So okay. here's an example of COINTELPRO working inside the organization to break it apart. Well, interestingly enough, you know, that program come to be comes to be known as COINTELPRO, but at the time it was they were just working out their techniques and practices. It didn't officially get that reference uh, until years later after Malcolm died, right around the time King was assassinated. And by then they had sharpened their tools in their toolbox and knew exactly what they were doing and led to the destruction of, uh, you know, and death of many lives. Why was J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI so afraid of Elijah Muhammad? Well, they were very afraid of Elijah Muhammad because he had incredibly extensive, devout following. Um, he had power and, and, and influence. They saw him as a separatist um, and as a, a radical threat. and a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was this very interesting FBI document in which they talked about the fear of a black messiah. And um, they listed, this was actually after Malcolm's death, um, but they listed Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm. And King, I and believe. Stokely Carmichael. And Stokely as the top contenders for that position. And actually in that same document, which is really chilling, they take credit for um, 
helping to exacerbate the rift between Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm, because it was the alliance of the two. I mean, Elijah Muhammad had this kind of religious, incredibly powerful religious following, but Malcolm was this explosive orator, right? And he had the ability to like, you know, incredible charisma, and they knew it. And so the idea that the two of them would be, you know, what, that wouldn't the, the, the appeal was in severing that connection. Similarly, King and Malcolm, in any way lying, was seen by the FBI was as an incredible threat. And they did a lot to try to make sure that didn't happen, too. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So what what is the FBI's fear of a black messiah? What specifically are they afraid of? They're basically afraid of losing their grip on the status quo, losing control of a country that is, you know, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-theoretical. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, Hoover just was there to maintain what they had already secured for themselves. And by they, I mean the powers that be. I mean, they use communism as their their tool in all of this that gave them a kind of so-called legal leg to stand on, that it was the communist threat that they perceived was pervasive within these organizations that enabled them to get the warrants for you know, surveillance and so on. That was, you know, it's all coming out of the McCarthy era. Um, so they're they're afraid they're first afraid of Elijah Muhammad and then later they grow even more afraid of Malcolm. Malcolm wasn't on their radar right away. I mean Malcolm rose very quickly in the nation. Well um, they did start to surveil him while he was still in, pre- in prison. They did, the but 1950s. they didn't they didn't necessarily see what he was going to become right away and then all of a sudden he's on the scene and he is incredible, you he's know. He's a catalyst. Yeah. Like, and that's when they start to really pay attention. Also, there was um, Malcolm spoke out about against police brutality very early and, and very powerfully. And when that happened, uh, the FBI, you can be sure, and and New York City's undercover agency, Bossy, really started to pay attention to him. I think it's also important to add that you know the rift between Malcolm and. Elijah Muhammad wasn't strictly the kind of salacious rumors around him and his dalliances. 
they were fundamentally at odds politically, that the Nation of Islam had as one of its edict a kind of apolitical point of view. You were not to get involved in voter registration drives if you were to vote at all. Um, You were not to speak out against governmental authority um, like Malcolm did, particularly with regard to police brutality, for fear of losing your religious status. That was basically gets to the heart of the Nation of Islam as an economic enterprise, mm-hmm. um, tax-free the f- as a religious organization. The, f- the fear of Malcolm, what, what does Malcolm's political growth in that last year when he becomes much more of a global citizen, much more of a thoughtful, um, not that he wasn't thoughtful before, but just his approach to black liberation and justice becomes much more global, much more thoughtful, much more surgical. He starts talking about, you know, involving the United Nations. He changed from the black nationalist, the ballot or the bullet to something that, in history, we would see as much more powerful and much more global. Does that ideological, intellectual shift make the FBI go, we got to get rid of him now? Or were they already saying, we got to get rid of this guy? That's a, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I I would surmise that Malcolm had those leanings long before he was able to express them and that his divorce, if you will, from the nation of Islam gave him that opportunity to be his true self. I mean, the the level to which his thinking had evolved, his pan-Africanist thinking had evolved, that was not new. Like, you don't just open up a book and come up with that. That that is days and years of scholarship and understanding the interconnection of the diaspora and 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 those of us who've been scattered across the globe and 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 how to harness that power and that was something that Malcolm understood probably long before he was able to express it i mean to the question of whether or not that made him a greater threat absolutely mm. absolutely because you describe you show he becomes this sort of international ambassador for black America. And he is received in other countries as a visiting dignitary. And he is just sort of showing up speaking for black America. That's right. And it's not just internationally. The other thing that starts to happen is because Malcolm's rhetoric, particularly towards white people, starts to soften somewhat. People, you know, in this country who had been supporters of Kings and had seen Malcolm as, you know, dangerous, violent, radical, begin to become more interested in him. And he begins to attract a more... um, A broader coalition. Definitely a more mainstream, broader coalition, which was extremely threatening. And he and King begin to have dance around the possibility of a meeting, a phone call, you know, and and this, again, to law enforcement, particularly to the FBI and Hoover, this is like the worst possible nightmare is these two guys... Unified. Joining forces. Yeah. And if you do look at the trajectory of King's political philosophy and what he was heading toward at the end of his life, this idea of getting away from legal protections and looking at poverty and war and, you know, international, um, you know, military power structures, I, that's very similar to Malcolm. In, 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 in an evolutionary In the other point. direction, right? They're moving towards each other in those last months of Malcolm's life.
Thanks so much to Rachel and Phil for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Join us over at patreon.com slash show for more from them about who killed Malcolm X. The NYPD intimately knew of the plots to assassinate Malcolm. I mean, they, they knew the guy was about to be assassinated. And, I mean, his house was firebombed a week before he was assassinated. Uh, there were multiple threats. There was actually a call from um, one of, from, um, who, who was it who called, was it Gene who called the? Um, yes, that he thought he saw a dry run. Yeah, Gene Roberts I mean, it was called Gene Roberts, right. Yeah. He called the, his, his boss at Bossy, the Bureau of Special Services and Investigation, um, to NYPD's tell them, Red Squad. this is in between the firebombing and the assassination, to say, I think I just saw a dress rehearsal for Malcolm's assassination. There was actually a very similar staged um, altercation in this Audubon ballroom a week before Malcolm's assassinated, in which something very similar to what ended up happening a week later happened, a diversion in the crowd to try to get people's attention so that they weren't focused on the front of the stage. And according to Gene Roberts, who says this on camera, Nobody at the NYPD ever followed up. So bottom line is they knew it was coming. They ha- And we have this extraordinary moment with one of the uh, high-ranking detectives at Bossy who we were able to interview, Tony Boza, um, who's now in Minneapolis, who tells us, you know, yeah, we, um, we, needed, we knew that Malcolm needed protection. We knew he was under immediate threat of death. And so I came up with this brilliant plan. Let's offer him protection document it, and he's going to refuse it. And it was a way of covering their ass. It was a way of, you know, saying they they did, but not having to actually do it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And what's interesting, of course, is why did Malcolm refuse it? Why did Malcolm say no? Um, and that really goes to his mistrust of the New York City Police Department. Um, police in general, but particularly the New York City Police Department, which was well-earned. Um, and so it's very hard to know exactly, you know. Booza characterizes that as a yeah. cynical gesture. Yeah. I, I would call it more Machiavellian. Do you see Do you see the NYPD in this as evil or incompetent? Ooh. It's a great question. I, 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 I you know, both those words are too strong. Uh, I don't, I would never indict the, the entire police force as being either evil or incompetent. But would I describe them as uh, irresponsible, um, complicit? Um, yes, in that particular case, for Ap- sure. Apathetic, aggressively irresponsible. Um, apathetic, bordering on hostile. It was too orchestrated to be incompetent. And... Um, Orchestrated so, incompetence. But just shy it's, of evil. I mean, it's look, just, they didn't kill him as far as we can tell. They didn't pull the trigger. Um, but there's but no they question. they allowed it to happen. They That's allowed right. it to happen. And there is no question <laughs> that had there been a, a squadron of police officers there on the scene, they would have caught the guys who did it. They may not have been able to prevent it, had men at but the they exits. would have caught the guys who did it. No question. That and more right now if you join us at patreon.com slash show. 
Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and talk about the show on social. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.